I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. The mainstream media today is out of touch and out of control. We see dishonest reporting meant to push self-serving narratives, cozy relationships between the press and the powerful elites of society, and no accountability when they get it wrong or get caught. This has been going on for a while, but it became apparent when Trump ran for president in 2016, accelerated and became undeniable during the presidential election and COVID pandemic in 2020, and is now moving at breakneck speed. We've seen collusion and censorship. We've seen American citizens doxxed, intimidated, and silenced. We've seen the Biden administration, big tech, and mainstream media gaslight the American people. And many Americans are left wondering what to believe anymore. Well, my guest today has spent his entire life in the media, From starting off as a self-described journalism nerd in high school to working at CNN, Fox, NBC, The Blaze, Steve Krakauer is his name, and he's a journalist and media critic, and he's the author of the brand new book, Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Steve is unbelievably brilliant with this stuff, and he's probably forgotten more about the media industry in this country than I'll ever learn in my lifetime. Steve and I discuss the state of journalism today in the media and how we got here, the dangers and fallout of an unaccountable media establishment, and most importantly, how we can fix it. So this was a fascinating, fascinating interview, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, my discussion with Steve Krakow. Steve, thank you so much for coming on Battleground and talking with us about your latest book, Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. And just for everybody who's watching or listening, um, I read this book cover to cover. I also listened to the audiobook, which is oh, nice. which is obvious. If you're an audiobook person, which a lot of people are in this day and age, it's pretty damn awesome because you get to like not only do you get the benefit of actually hearing you read the actual book itself um in your voice, you actually hear these interviews with these journalists that 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 you talk to like Tucker Carlson, or Kaylee McInerney, or Ben Smith, Piers Morgan, or like one of my all-time favorites, Selena Zito, and and many, many more. Like you've just, this is a rigorous book. Um, and and what I always used to tell people in the army, Steve, is like as a commander, like don't just come to me bitching, griping, and moaning about something. Come to me with the issue, a discussion, and a recommendation. And what I loved about this book is not only do you have five very clear things that the media is not doing so well. Um, you also give a recommendation on how to fix it. I try to. Yeah, that's that's the that's the goal. Because, you know, as I as I lay out in the book, I, I think that the media is is very broken. Uh the corporate media, it was it was not perfect when in the days when I was at CNN in twenty ten to twenty thirteen, by any means. There was valid criticisms. Um, but it's gotten significantly worse. And I think it's been it's it's obvious to most people, you know, even people that are apolitical, you know, I live in Texas. Most of the people I interact with on a daily basis are not interested in politics as a hobby or interested even in, in the media as a hobby. They they watch it because they want to know what's going on in the world and they can see it. They can't necessarily see why it happened or how it's happening, but they can feel something fundamentally change and they've lost trust in these places that they maybe had even 10 years ago, uh, some degree of trust in. So I do try to lay that out. And first of all, I have to say thank you uh, on the audiobook side because I do, it was something that that was really important to me um, was every conversation I had in the book, 26 interviews that I do with people across the spectrum, as you mentioned, a lot of people from Fox News, people from NBC, people from the New York Times and beyond, 
everything is on the record, first of all. So there's no anonymous sources in there. And not only that, but I recorded all these conversations and the, the audience can hear these, the people in their own voices give all the quotes that they, they give in the audiobook if you if you choose that route. I mean, it's so I mean, you've clearly forgotten more about the media than I could ever even hope to remember, Steve. I mean, but you've done it all. I mean, like you've worked for CNN and now you're an executive producer for Megyn Kelly and you've done all sorts of stuff in between. It seems like, you know, everybody. Um, and as I mentioned, there are five clear things in this book that you talk about that the media just doesn't do very well, one of which is geographic bias, lack of introspection, coziness with power, broken financial incentives and influencers and anti-speech activism. And we could probably do 24 hours on on all of this stuff. And I'm so interested in it. But like before we get into any of that, how did you get into this? Like where where are you from? And how did you, how did you, because one of the things that like blew me away about you is like learning about all the information that you know about this stuff, Steve, you clearly love and have an affinity for the media. You don't want to burn it all down. Right. You think it clearly, you see the, the vital role that the media plays in this country, but what, like, what about this profession attracted you in the first place? Yeah, I I was a journalism nerd from back in high school. To be honest, uh, my first <laughs> wait, wait is that, what's a journalism nerd? What, what is, I, I went to a summer camp when, after my junior year oh, in high school for journalism. You were uh, one of those Northwestern. guys. So- I was, I was. I mean, I uh, I really I ate it up. Um, and uh, my first job uh, in when I was in high school uh, was working at my local town paper. I worked in this little town in New Jersey. Um, we had a, a weekly paper that came out. I in the summer I covered uh, men's. <laughs> softball leagues uh that i'd go and i'd get paid twenty dollars if they what? ran my article and yeah uh it, I, get so I started, out of here i did yeah i i knew i knew early on i was very interested in journalism um went to syracuse university uh and newhouse school the journalism school there um and and really from the really from the, that moment you know 15 16 years old was very interested in it and uh at the same time you know i mentioned i was grew up in new jersey Went to school at Syracuse in, in New York. I lived in New York City for, for many years, working at a variety of outlets, covering the media. That's where I kind of really got to know a lot of the people in the media, um, was working at sites like Mediaite, uh, which I helped launch uh, in 2009, and then working at CNN, and then The Blaze. And at The Blaze, I ended up moving down to Dallas, where we have a big office, uh, where we had a big office, Glenn Beck, uh, Glenn Beck's company there. They were based in New York and based in Dallas. I moved with my wife in 2014 down to Dallas. So I've been here for nine years now. And frankly, you ask, where's the genesis of of this also is I, I love journalism, but but by getting outside of that like literal bubble, the New York and DC bubble, uh, opened my eyes in a lot of ways. And uh, after the blaze, I really stepped outside of the media overall. I, I had my own company, I worked in a marketing agency, and I was viewing this very strange to, to me moment in 2015 and even going back a little bit earlier and then 2016 and with what happened with Trump, but far beyond Trump too, and trying to diagnose what was happening because it was so foreign to what I was viewing, to what the people that I encounter are experiencing. And I think about it a lot, Sean, of like if I was still at CNN, if I still lived in New York, would I have been able to see frankly, what I was able to see and put into Uncovered, I don't know. I think I may have gotten caught up in a lot of this also. So it was being physically outside of that, that was able to, I think, open my eyes to a little bit and try to diagnose this from a position of love in some ways, tough love, and and trying to get it better. Because I think we do need a strong media, but we just don't have it right now. I mean, it's so clear that that you love and respect your profession. And it makes a lot of sense that you were one of those kids that was going to journalism <laughs> summer, summer camps. Like yeah. so much makes sense now about about this book, because it does seem like you really do love the profession and and you want to see it improve. And what's hey, so you were like a, a blaze guy. You were one of the 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 blaze farm team. So to speak, because in 2014, like one of my first forays into um, the media, one of my first experiences with television media was The Blaze. And it was real news. And Buck Sexton was there. Yeah, yeah. And Will Kane was there. And Pete Hegseth was there. And and so many people, so many people were there. And you were there as well. We must have just missed each other. Yeah. So I was there in the sense that I was a producer. My my job title at The Blaze was vice president of digital content. I was fully (laughs) behind the scenes. Um, I worked really closely with people like Buck and Will Kane in particular. Yeah. On on basically my my job was to, you know, there was 
loosely television. You know, Real News aired at 6 p.m. every night on The Blaze. And it was a streaming network very early in the, in the process. Frankly, I think they were early uh, in, in what was to come with like the Netflixes of the world, uh, the whole business model. But um, but then it was like, well, what can we do to, to expand our reach through YouTube, through social media, uh, working with people like Will and Buck and Tara Setmeyer was there and SE Cup, people that have gone <laughs> in other right. directions, right. let's say, yeah. uh, and, and expand their personal brands. What else do you want to do? What can we put on YouTube? What can we put on other platforms? So um, yeah, it was it was interesting. And and you know, obviously I was at CNN, I worked for Beers Morgan, I worked very closely with Jeff Zucker. Um, and then I was at the Amazing. Blaze, I worked very closely with Glenn Beck. Um, I'm not an overly political person one way or the other. <laughs> um, I think is is probably clear. Uh, I've got personal opinions, but I mean I'm a registered independent. Um, I, I don't, you know, see this as an ideological thing. Um, I, I think that it's 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 beyond that. And and I try to also look for the best in people. That's another thing is I think there's so much judgment in, especially in the corporate media. And uh, I think that generally the average person in America is a, is a good person and they are not being reflected and served well by a media that, that has such disdain for them, frankly, on the right or the left. I, I completely agree with you. And so much of this book and the thesis that the underlying thesis of it all is that you talk about the media, at least over the last 20 years or so. And the way at least it broke down in my mind was that you talk about like from 2010 up to basically 2016. And then in 2016, somebody came along named Donald Trump yeah. that sort of shifted everything in many ways. And you talk about in the book. Um, yeah, the media was probably always democratic maybe always leaned left a little bit um but when trump came along man it's like it seemed like the media abandoned so many of the principles that of what make the media what it is important to the people and ba basically speaking truth the power and being a guard dog of our republic and our democracy to just like a rabid focus on donald trump in part because like maybe he he was good for ratings and and that was good for for some of these networks in their bottom line but what, talk about that and, and that yeah. shift. Um, Donald Trump is just like a, a paradigm shifter, I guess. He was. I, I think it was in a void that was perhaps already created. I think through through social media, through the incentive structure, uh, there was there was fear in in not saying the the wrong thing and covering something in a way that was you know might get you backlash on Twitter. So that already existed. And then, as you mentioned, yeah, now now comes Donald Trump down the escalator <laughs> and uh, and and just completely upsets everything. And I, I lay out and uncovered in, in chapter five, uh, which I call the Trump addiction, because I do think it's an addiction. I, I think that there's something that they almost can't control um, that they're 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 feeling for him uh, and and you know hatred in one way love in another way um, and and trying to diagnose what it is that that happened here and it's kind of three things I, I think that they're they're absolutely was it was business on one level of it yes he was great for ratings he was great for clicks he was great for subscribers that that's that's absolutely a part of it but then on addition, you know, it's also personal. Uh, and, and I talk about this with so many different people. It's business and personal because Donald Trump was, you have to understand, he was in that media environment. Um, this is a guy in 1987 who writes The Art of the Deal, which is a fascinating book for anyone who wants to understand. Here we go again, by the way. I mean, this is all going to be repeated as <laughs> we're know. finding out. So it's never too late to read Art of the Deal and understand <laughs> what is happening here because he controlled the media to such an extent. He's part of that world. This is a guy who was married in 2005, and Jeff Zucker was there, and Katie Couric was there, and Gail King was there, and Chris Matthews. This is, I mean, you know, The, the Apprentice was an enormous hit show. Uh, he hosted Saturday Night Live in 2015. So he's part of that world. And then he becomes this turncoat to the world. You know, he becomes a, a he exposes that world in a lot of ways. Uh, again, a reminder, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were at that wedding in 2005. Uh, and so, I, so I lay all this out as well. Yeah. So, so he, was, he was very much connected in that way. And then I also think, though, because you think, well, all right, so that still is not a reason to completely abandon these principles. But what I heard from people who were in these newsrooms during the Trump years was that they believed some people really did believe they were in this existential fight to save democracy, <laughs> that, that they that Donald Trump was this huge. And I think it's completely ridiculous. I'm sure a lot of people think it's ridiculous. But what I would say to them is, if you really believe this, I mean, it, let's just grant that that's the case. 
that's when you need to double down on your principles even more. You know, that's when you need to to really be as strong in your in your you know instincts and in your journalistic ability and your integrity so that you can convince the widest number of people that that he's this great threat. But instead, they went the other direction. Then the guardrails were completely off. You know, they said, oh, we have to meet this moment. And so we must now give monologues in our news programs. No, that's not that that's going the opposite way. And it just destroyed the trust of the average viewer and reader. I mean, what do you think created this? Oh, I mean, people call it Trump derangement syndrome, and I'm sure yeah. that you've heard that. But like, what do you think? What I found fascinating is it just what you talked about. All these people from George Stephanopoulos to Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and, and Katie Kirk, all these people were at his wedding. And prior to Donald Trump running for office, I mean, celebrities were lining up around the block to go to, to go to his parties and be a part of the world that he created. And what another thing that I found fascinating about your book is you is that his relationship with Zucker, right? Yeah. Where, where Zucker was working at NBC and how Donald Trump was being Prior to running for 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 president, or at least the second time, I think he ran for president one time before that or whatever. But he, he, he was teased it. Yeah, yeah, he teased it. They were propping him up to be the face of NBC, and so in yeah. way, like so, Jeff Zucker and Donald Trump almost they they, they work. They created each other, and then they, they find did. themselves on opposite ends of the fe- uh, of the spectrum when Zucker is at CNN going to war with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump at war with CNN. It was just like. How the hell does that happen? Yeah, well, and and it's important to remember also the primary process because they really were not at odds right away in 2015. Oh, that's so true. That's, that's you know, right. Yeah, you know, Jeff Zucker got a lot of criticism from the left for the empty podium and just the nonstop coverage of the speeches. And again, I think it's potentially happening again. Jeff Zucker's not there, but CNN and other outlets are are certainly devoting a ton of oxygen, all of their their attention to Donald Trump right now. Um, but so it didn't start that way. And in fact, there there was a, a, a story that I cite that I believe it was Tucker Carlson that broke the news that Jeff Zucker was having conversation with Michael Cohen, who at the time was still on the Trump side, about how when Donald Trump, you know, loses to Hillary Clinton, maybe we'll give him a show on CNN. I mean, that, that was the mentality. And, and, and the belief was, which they turned out to be wrong, was that he would be easy to beat. Put, prop him up, make him this great star of of the media, get all the, the attention, make him the GOP nominee, and then have him nicely lose to Hillary Clinton and go off in the sunset and we can move on with our lives. Well, November 2016 came <laughs> and there's people, as I, I've reported also, crying in the newsroom about this. I mean, they're... they're it was not just that they were sad that Donald Trump won. It was that they believed that they, they there was a 0% chance in these people's minds that it was even possible. And it, sh- it shows how completely out of touch they were with the entire mood of the country that they didn't even conceive oh, so that it was true. possible. I right. mean, what doesn't that support like one the whole point of geographic bias? Which, yeah. by the way, by the way, from Western Pennsylvania, born and raised my entire life. I fell into that as well a little bit. I mean, in, in 2016, I, I backed Marco Rubio. I liked the idea of a younger conservative, the new face of the Republican Party running for president. And if you remember uh, in the South Carolina primary, I was down there with Marco Rubio. The, the dude must have knocked thousands of doors, had an unrivaled ground game. And you pull out, we're like leaving. And if you remember back then, like Marco Rubio had to win South Carolina, yeah. right? Had to, to stay in the race or to even have any shot at the nomination. And I mean, he pulled out all the stops there, Steve. And we're pulling out, you know, as campaign buses do. And like, oh, there's all these staffers and volunteers everywhere, like running into McDonald's or going into gas stations and getting drinks or whatever. And yeah. I like see this like little Donald Trump headquarters. And I like walk in there and I'm like, what's all this about, you know, because it didn't matter what what Marco Rubio said or did or, or any Republican that was running against him. It was like the Teflon Don thing. Right. Nothing stuck yeah. to him. And I walk in there. There's like one old dude there with like 40 iPads. And I'm like, what the hell is happening? Clearly, uh, I'm missing something. The media is missing something. And then I, I went back to Pennsylvania and drove all around the state and, you know, saw signs and writing an article in The Hill about that's fascinating. Donald, Donald Trump's going to win. Right. And of course, I got attacked by all of the people that you call Acela Media, and which, by the way, people in New York City take the train to D.C. and back and forth. And so Acela Media is the train that they take the Acela. Right. And I did it. I did it myself many, many times. Yeah. So it's, an, a, it's a very appropriate yeah. name. And, and of course, I'm like, oh, there are signs everywhere, which, of course, all of that's anecdotal. Total, right. And but I'm like, there was just something in the air that that people were missing. I'm like, Trump is going to win. And I got attacked. We're like, ah, that's just bullshit. That's anecdotal crap. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, OK, and sure enough, sure enough, in 2016, he won. So, Sean, I mean, I, I, I and, you know, it's fascinating. I, I also 
you know, you can, sure, it's a sample size of, of one or a couple, but <laughs> yeah, I had those, yeah. those same sort of moments um, that, that were eye-opening to me. I, I had an HVAC repair guy come to my house in 2015. This was before the primary process even started, but Donald Trump's running and there's other people running and it was sort of a joke. And he says to me, he's like, hey, what do you, you know, you, I told him I work in, in media and uh, he said, what do you think about Donald Trump? I said, like, eh, you know, I don't know. What do you think? He said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for him. He said, I'm going to vote for him because I'm going to, with one vote, I can piss off both parties. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and, uh, so that was one. And then the other one, I went to this dinner party. Um, You know, Dallas is a pretty 50-50 city, you know, red and blue. Um, I went to dinner party. It was, was, I have a lot of uh, gay friends here. This was, I was sitting next to a gay married couple and they were huge Trump supporters. Um, these are guys, you know, and and I was just talking about what they're, what why they were, what they were, why they were excited to vote for him, um, and and it was eye opening to me because these these people are you know are not reflected in your average cable news pundit battle that's going on in 2016. They it's it's it was completely unreflective of it. And you mentioned Selena Zito either, earlier in the way that she you know, she really got the mood of the country, and she's a great bellwether also for it because you know I talked to Selena for the book about how she was initially hired by CNN because there was this brief moment of introspection after the election that said, wow, we really missed something. Like, let's get Selena in here, hire her as a contributor for four years. And that initially, you know, she told me, and she's never told the story before, that she was put in front of the entire newsroom and was interviewed about basically what they missed. And and there was, a, and she was getting booked on shows, but she described how it went from being asked, Oh, what what do the Trump supporters think about this? That was what she was being, you know, asked about. To why do they believe that? Why would they believe these lies? And then, as she said, I don't know. I'm a reporter. After a couple of those, within months in 2017, she was off the air completely, just sidelined the entire duration of her contract because that initial burst of introspection immediately went away. And instead of just being against Trump, the media turned against his supporters and the people that put him there in the first place. I mean, there's no question about that, right? Like, and and this is this is why the whole concept of fake news caught on with damn near 50 percent of the country, because they felt that and and this sort of parlays into like just connects perfectly to what I wanted to talk to you next about is the whole idea of coziness with power. Right. And I just found this so compelling. Right. Because the media in many ways, why do they believe that they almost believe well, not almost. I think in many ways they do believe that they are part of the elite in this country. They're powerful themselves, which of course they are. They're on TV. Yeah. They have massive Twitter followings. They're talking to millions of people every night. And they're rubbing elbows with U.S. senators and presidents and members of Congress. So, like, of course they have an unbelievable amount of power. And how much of that – and obviously, like, Donald Trump was one of those people. They were yeah. Half of these people were at his wedding. Right. And, and, and the idea that, like – when how do you speak truth to power when you're in that same group and many of the people that you'd be speaking truth to you're friends with you know yeah it's just it that's unbelievably concerning to me i know i know and 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 it's not purely about Trump. I'll give you just two examples that I give in the book when it comes to coziness with power. First of all, let's think about 2020 and Bernie Sanders. Okay, let's go to the other side of the aisle. And the way that Bernie Sanders, we know thanks to what we learned in the emails, the DNC essentially worked with the Hillary Clinton campaign to undermine Bernie Sanders in 2016. We know that. I mean, of course, they they basically rigged the process for Hillary. I mean, absolutely. I hate the word rig, but it's definitely what they did. They they did. They, They worked in a way that was not what the DNC was supposed to do to undermine Hillary Clinton's top competitor. No, no doubt about it. In 2020, sure, there was definitely some political wrangling that was happening against Bernie Sanders as well. I think the Bloomberg candidacy was essentially this kamikaze to take him out. And, and then eventually, as we learned before Super Tuesday, all of the top competitors galvanized behind Biden to stop Bernie Sanders. So the Klobuchar and the Peter, they just dropped out and then just just so so there was still that happening. But it was also the media, you know, MSNBC, people like Joy Reid and Chris Matthews also and others who it gets lost a lot of time. They attacked Bernie Sanders and his supporters in a shocking way for a, a network that was just really what you would think is supporting whatever the lefty candidate of the time is, because in a moment there he won Nevada and it looked like he was cruising to become the nominee. 
And they could not have that. They had to stop that also. He was this disruption to the establishment in the way Trump was also. And so that it's not just about Trump also. It's about any disruption to the power, to the coziness that we see there. So, so that's the first thing. And then out of politics completely, I spent a lot of time talking about Jeffrey Epstein in the book uh, because talk about- It was fascinating, know, by the way. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, you talk about Trump's wedding and the and the guest list there. Well, George Stephanopoulos and Katie Couric and and a lot of other people uh, have met with Jeffrey Epstein at his you know at a dinner party at his house. Not just before we knew anything about Jeffrey Epstein, but after he had gotten out of jail for pleading guilty to underage prostitution and serving time. I mean, it was sort of in jail. He was kind of like on house arrest, but. That was in Florida. And then he moves to New York and then he has a dinner party where all these people go, Chelsea Handler, Katie Couric, George Stephanopoulos. And and they all say it was the one time we met him. We didn't know anything about him. Okay, sure. Sure, fine. But you're in, in the news business. Katie Couric was at CBS. George Stephanopoulos was at ABC. You might be a little bit interested in this person that you just had dinner with who has a giant picture <laughs> right. of Bill Clinton in a blue dress on his wall that you just had the dinner party at. Maybe you might pursue that as a journalistic endeavor instead of sitting on the story for years and years while these continue to happen. And and still, I mean, you know, D- D- Jeffrey Epstein then killed himself, in theory, in his jail cell. And then the story was gone completely. We don't even know the half of it. And there's no curiosity among the corporate press. Why? Because if we start to uncover stuff, how implicated are they in that story as well? I mean, it's so true. And not just not just Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, you yeah. talk about Harvey Weinstein right. and how a, a, a reporter, I can't remember her name, but had the story about Harvey Harvey Weinstein for, what did you say, three years prior to it? Or, Sharon am, am Waxman, I right about uh, yeah, Sharon Waxman I mean, at the New York Times talks about how the story got killed. Rich McHugh, who I speak to, who was at NBC at the time working with Ronan Farrow, describes in great detail how that story was killed by his bosses and how it completely changed the way he thinks about the media. Uh, yeah. No, they covered for him then. I mean, so and and by the way, you lead in with the book about the, the Hunter Biden laptop and how and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth about but but how you see it as almost I mean, an egregious example of, of censorship bias, call it whatever you want, but almost an inflection point for you. I mean, you start your book that with that story. And I mean, how, I, I as I read that, actually, as I as, as I finished your book, I thought about that Hunter Biden's laptop and wondered how much of that was you know, media wanting to be cozy with power, like, hey, thinking that maybe Joe Biden would win. And hey, if I write about his son and Hunter Biden's laptop and some of the horrific things that that he did, uh, you know, are they right there on that laptop? And by the way, you look at some of that stuff on that laptop. If you have any common sense or half a brain whatsoever, you know that it's real, you know. Right. Um, But how many people like didn't report on that laptop because they thought like maybe Joe Biden wouldn't allow them into the White House press room or allow them to ha- ask a question or wouldn't be invited to that swanky dinner or fundraiser or whatever. Um, and ultimately, I mean, if you look at I mean, there were some polls out there, Steve, that that said if the Hunter Biden laptop story had been comp- you know, reported on, like it, it might have swayed the election by upwards of five percentage points. Oh, yeah. And it didn't even need that much. Right. I mean, it was really a couple hundred right. thousand votes in a few states right. and Trump would have won. Right. So. Right. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's it is it, there was we could spend hours talking just about the Hunter Biden laptop story. I do think that it was one of the most important instances of understanding where how how far our media has fallen by the way that 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 story was handled. Talk about verifying that laptop, Tucker Carlson tells me in the book that he knew it was real instantly because he was sent an email between himself and Hunter Biden that he knows he wrote. And so he's like, oh, okay. I mean, you, you don't have this email from me to Hunter Biden, who he was friendly with at one point and describes how he was, you know, he, the families were close uh, at one point before Hunter Biden kind of went off the deep end. Uh, that it proved it it was real from the moment essentially it came out, but there was a real push. So what 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 happened? What was that push against it? And as I write about it uncovered, I think there were it, it really boils down to guilt and fear. The guilt was the way that they were attacked and they they felt personally responsible because of how they handled Hillary's emails in 2016. And they they feel, I think, I think they're being too hard on themselves. I don't I don't think the media's handling of Hillary Clinton's emails elected Donald Trump. I don't think they have that power, but but they really believe that. They believe that they did something that helped put him in office. So they were not going to make that mistake again. And then also fear. Uh, we saw journalists who, like Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, tweeted a link to the New York Post story that as it came out and just sort of questioned the sourcing. Oh, this seems sort of sketchy, linked to the New York Post. And she was attacked 
for daring to just even link to it and question the sourcing. She was called Maga Haberman. She was trending on Twitter. I, I, I well, remember. I remember. Yeah. So when you have Same. that, you know, you have to have a, a level of of balls to even go that far of just <laughs> tweeting a link to it. And yeah. then what we saw was the suppression. Right. The 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 New York Post was locked out of their Twitter account. And then in an unprecedented move, Twitter made it so that that link was not shareable through publicly or even privately. And there was no outrage by the corporate press about that. Yes, they eventually did reverse themselves a day or two later, but the New York Post remained locked out of their account for weeks to come. And there was no outrage by the press over that total overreach when it comes to suppression and censorship. And that's what started what what was to come, which is this rise of anti-speech activism we saw during COVID and so many instances, just this idea of you, we can't trust the public with this information. So we need to just make sure they have less information. That is not an ideal of the press. And you talk about this in your book. Uh, what did you call it? Information being an information maximalist versus yeah. an information minimalist, right? And right. I, I believe that you say you're an information maximalist, as as am Absolutely. I. And I, I because I mean, ultimately, I think that the American people are smart enough to decipher for for themselves what to do with maybe certain health information if we're yeah. talking about COVID or trying to decipher whether or not somebody's legitimately insane. I think the American people are smart enough to figure that out for themselves. And in fact, I think one can make the argument, Steve, that by censoring those people or labeling them disinformation, you actually help their platform grow, you know? 100%. Yes. And, and so what I, it's it's if you if you talk about in your book like I'm thinking about how the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story was such an egregious example that ultimately swayed an election and 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 you also talk in depth about covid which also exposed some glaring faults uh within the media um and the whole Cuomo and Cuomo show yeah. and ha- them having an hour in primetime of, you know, Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo on their same show with the with the big like Q-tip and talking about right. testing. And then where you had CNN has like this hundred page ethics handbook of like of how to conduct yourself as an on air personality or a journalist. And, and and Zucker himself waived a rule to, to allow the governor of the then governor of New York on Chris Cuomo's show to basically goof around for an hour during primetime time at the height of covid which of course this was all before like we learned that you know andrew cuomo was shunting old folks into nursing homes and they were dying uh, to the tune of tens of thousands i mean it's just a tidal wave of human suffering there and then was accused of sexual harassment ultimately resigned but what what what's what's crazy to me about that and i kept thinking is that like cnn almost created this scenario to where they had then after Andrew Cuomo had to resign, they had an hour like at what's the seven o'clock time slot leading into prime time where they, where Chris Cuomo wasn't even allowed to talk about what was one of the biggest stories in the country at that time and then hand off to Don Lamont after the fact where he then bashed his brother. I'm like, this is just all so crazy to me. I just it's just crazy. It's a great example of the way just a little bit of loosening up the standards can can be the snowball effect. Um, wow. And I should also great, point out. You great, know, yeah. great way to say it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because um, and, and I should also say, you know, this section of Uncovered really highlights something that I, I it's complicated. The whole issue of the media is complicated because, frankly, some of the best voices, I would say, in that chapter, people like David Fulkenflick of NPR, Eric Wempel of The Washington Post, who are able to call out this CNN and what they did are, are obviously part of the corporate media themselves. Um, so there are some people that I think have some introspection about this. And I think it's not can't paint with a broad brush. There's good journalism being done every day. And yet they're often undermined by their own colleagues. Uh, so so that's the first thing to say. But yeah, I, I think that what the the Cuomo story was was one where it's like in the height of COVID in, in, in March, April, May of 2020, there's there were mistakes being made when it comes to journalism ethics. There were mistakes being made when it comes to to what was true about COVID. And I think all of that can be on some level forgiven because it was this crazy time. You know, it was this this unprecedented uh, uh, you know pandemic, and no one really knew what was going on. But two things happened. One. The, the when, it, when it comes to like the the ethics and standards of the Cuomo show is it went on forever and long after even we learned about the nursing home story and then of course when they when they decide oh let's put the put the standards back on now Chris can't talk about his brother at all certainly can't interview him it, it just makes it so glaring that they're still now covering it on other parts of the network and then of course the, Jeff Zucker gets wrapped up into it and he gets pushed out also that lawsuit's still ongoing by the way and and it just was kind of the nail in the coffin to be honest on, on mean, seeing an credibility issue 
It was crazy. Steve, like, I was I was running. I think I was running for Congress at that point. And just as a personal anecdote, like I've always been a political outsider. I've been involved, you know, but yeah. like was busy doing my own thing. And I always knew, like you assert in the book, the media maybe always leaned left. And I was cognizant of that. And, you know, anytime I watched the news, I was cognizant of it. But when I when I ran, boy, I realized like, holy shit, there's a lot more to this than than meets the eye. And 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 I, and what I'm thinking of right now is is Chris Cuomo on his show, like walking up from the steps out of quarantine. <laughs> and I'm like, that was completely made up. Like, none, like none of that was real. Like it was complete bullshit. And I started yes. thinking to myself, Steve, like. Like, so I can't be the only one feeling this, right? Like, how much of this stuff is just performative bullshit, right? Yeah. And, 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 oh, by the way, this was happening during a pandemic that was very real in which thousands and thousands of people were losing their life or getting sick or loved ones being forced to die alone. People were trying to sift through what's true and what's not. And you talk about a loosening of an ethical standard, like, stuff like that didn't help. It hurt. And, and, Real people's lives were hurt because of it. You know, when you talk about like one example I mentioned was loved ones dying alone, but people yeah. lost their life savings. Businesses were closed. And and you have Chris Cuomo like from I don't even know where Martha's Vineyard, like coming up from the basement, acting like he's like Lazarus rising from the dead or something. And then nobody from CNN even says anything about it. Like. Like I can't. How does that? How does something like that happen? I know. I know. I think he was at his uh, one of his Hamptons houses over there. What? Yeah. yeah it's, it's nuts. It's it just. It, well, it's, frankly, I think that whole thing and really just the the arrogance, uh, the smugness of the Chris Cuomo's of the world comes a little bit also from social media and buying your own hype in so many of these instances and and the rise of these influencers, these these media members now think that they're stars in, in a way. And and that, you know, even people that are far below the you know bottom of the rung, but have 20,000 Twitter followers, you can right. feel like a lot. You feel like you got this big platform, even <laughs> yeah, though, true. you know, you, you maybe, maybe don't in reality. But uh, no, I think COVID w w was, was just so disastrous because so many of these stories we talk about, Chris Cuomo coming out of the basement is, you know, a lighter example. And there's, there's other ones also that I give out in the book. But COVID was serious. You know, this was something that, and it's not just about, you know, the, the initial part of it, but like lockdowns, the way lockdowns were covered, you know, masks and, and vaccines. And we could go right down the line in every case. The, the media essentially chose what was the one true scientific expert opinion, the consensus opinion, and, and said anything that deviates from that is dangerous. And that's not just wrong. I mean, it's not just is actually wrong that they got so much wrong, but it's it's dangerous to even have that point of view. The idea that you can't have a debate about something or a discussion, a nuanced conversation, these things weren't black and white. We knew that at the time and they knew that at the time, but they went with this because they just didn't feel that the public could deal with the nuance of these issues. I, I think, I mean, in some ways they were completely spun by the Fauci's of the world, as we would find out and, and allowing them to suppress and censor themselves. oh you steve you wrote about this stuff in your book man yeah. and it pissed me off so much because it, first of all you talk about fauci right yeah. and and how COVID itself became super politicized and you know trump was a part of it you know and and you talk about in the book about how if Trump supported something, the the, the media is almost and I, I'm painting with broad strokes here and, and, yeah. and I agree with you. We shouldn't do that. But I say the media is like many in the media just ran to oppose whatever it is that he said. 100%. And and you had Fauci, who was not necessarily an expert on any of these topics, but because of. You know, the time that he spent in Washington as part of these bureaucratic institutions, he makes contact and he's cozy with all these people with power, was able to, he, I think one of the people that he interviewed said that, like, more than almost anything else, like, he was just a master at manipulating the media and was able to smear so many of these other doctors who had opposing positions. And what I kept thinking about as I was reading uh, was, like, what is in it for the media? Yeah. To, to, to do that. It, all it does well, is hurt their credibility. And ultimately, what really pissed me off about it, Steve, is that people's lives were destroyed because of it. Yes. And there was no 100%. accountability for any of it. Not not 
nearly enough and not nearly enough self-reflection uh, from the media for what they did in, in, in joining in that. No, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya uh, is the person that I spoke to who describes uh, Fauci as a genius, you know, an evil genius, if you will, right. but someone who, who understood <laughs> yeah, the way. How, yeah, he, he, was, he had built these relationships with the media, with those in power uh, in government and in media for, for decades leading up to the pandemic. And so he was well positioned to speak with this, this great authority and to not just say, I'm the authority, which again, probably wrong, but at the very least, you could say that. But to say anyone else who deviates from what I say is dangerous. And, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya was one of the three experts. So this is a Stanford professor and a doctor. Absolutely who, brilliant. Yes, who who put together the Great Barrington Declaration. And if anyone's even remotely familiar with the Great Barrington Declaration, you may think that it was this quack, you know, dangerous paper that was put together in order to get people killed. You know, let it rip. That was what people would describe it as. Let that COVID just rip through society. That was not it at all. It was an argument for focused protection on the elderly, not to lock down everyone, but to make sure the elderly are taken care of. And the, and those who are immunocompromised, that was literally the, the entire thing. They were they, they didn't have to be proven right to for it to be ridiculous how they were treated, but they were proven right, as we now know scientifically. And yet they were uh, attacked in the media. They were attacked. They were censored and 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 smeared as these spreading disinformation and, and dangers from the Fauci's of the world, but also from the corporate media themselves, from the New York Times. And and that is something that is it, it can't ever get fully corrected because once we, we've gone down this road, you know, we, we can't go back. But at the very least, you'd hope for a little bit of introspection from the press for how they, they handled COVID, how they got it so wrong and and just spun just what, what turned out to be completely untrue. I mean, it's so true. And you talk about the importance of humility in the book and that, you know, when when journalism, you know, it's important how journalists have a brand now and that brand is is built upon on social media and like the, the lack of introspection, which which comes part and parcel with that is a lack of humility. And, and I think the American people are understanding, even though COVID was a really tough time for a lot of people. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find a family in this country that that didn't have somebody that was very, very ill or maybe even perhaps lost somebody. Yeah. So very serious time. But a little goes a long way in terms of humility and the media just saying like, hey, look, we're sorry. We were trying to sift through this as best we could. And mistakes were made along the way, but we will be better and try to get better every day. Like that didn't happen and yeah. it should have happened, but and it would have gone a long way had some people just done that, I think. Yeah, I, I think it, it's still, it's never too late to admit you, you were wrong. I, I think it, I agree with you. I think it goes a long way. I think there's so much sense in the corporate media that they don't want to admit when they get things wrong because they think that the audience that they have might continue to turn against them. I think that's completely wrong. I think that's the, the totally incorrect approach. They would find out if they would actually go and be accountable, that that would ingratiate them to the public, that they would trust them more if they would say when they get it wrong. So, so I agree with you. But I also think what what this is a symptom of, you think, why did this happen, is that there, journalism is a very weird occupation in the sense that it's not like um, a meritocracy, okay? You know, if, if, if you're talking about like plumbers, uh, you, you, there'd be Yelp reviews and you would see the, the ones that would do a great job would get five stars and the ones that are lazy or not so good would get, you know, put down the line and, and the best one would get rise to the top and the bad ones would get weeded out. Journalism doesn't work like that at all. You know, in, in fact, it's almost the opposite. A, a lot of times the worst journalists get rewarded in the, in the biggest ways possible because they're good at other aspects of things, whether it's through building brands on social media or playing the game in the, in the powerful scent circles. So, so it, there is no mechanism to, to help bring the best journalists to the top and, and because of that, you have a lot of lazy, incompetent people who make up these newsrooms, not all of them, but a lot of them. And these people are not going to get better because they can't. They are incapable of getting better. And until we actually have bosses who care about what actually is journalism, actually what is what, you know, what should it be to serve the public, we're not going to get this better. I mean, you talk about being lazy and incompetent. You also talk about Jussie Smollett and the hoax that that was. And... I mean, I, like the Gorilla TV and the idea that President Trump is sitting around in the Oval Office and watching two gorillas fight on a on a network that was just for him was more believable than the Jesse Smollett hoax. Like the idea that there are two MAGA types in Chicago in the middle of a polar vortex in the middle of the night just so happen to be carrying bleach and like conduct some horrific 
attack on Justy Smollett and pour bleach on him and everything else and say this is MAGA country, even though it's probably like a D plus 100. Like, <laughs> right. anyone could have known, just like anybody that was like, it, all of these people exist in the media from, from producers to editors and no one thought for a second that like maybe this isn't, well, how does some, I guess my question for you is, Steve, is how the hell does something like that happen to where, like what, in 24 hours, he's got, he's like getting a primetime interview with, um, what, Robin, Robin Roberts, Roberts, yeah, Robin yeah. Roberts, who, who is, who is, who I respect and, and, and think she's great by the way, but how does that happen? And she's you got celebrities like, uh, be strong, Jesse, like everybody in the country who seemed to galvanize, but he was a completely ridiculous fake story. Yeah. It's I I lay this out in the in the chapter about incompetence and introspection (laughs) or and laziness, because I I also think that there's another element to this. And that is what happened in in this instance. You know, we we, it seems completely ridiculous, like as you're laying out the facts and people know know, the Jesse Smollett story (laughs) pretty well. But what you might not remember is like there were outlets. Let's just say like Entertainment Tonight was one of those that I lay out in the book, which described it as an alleged homophobic and racist attack. And he was allegedly attacked. And the way that they couched that, which was the right thing to do journalistically, was then attacked by people like AOC for how dare you call what happened to him racist and homophobic. They were then, you know, got into the, the Twitter storm. They were the the, the bad account of the week. And and so you start to lay out, there's not the incentive structure in the media now because of social media, because how everything is public. It's not just about getting it right or wrong, but it's also about what is acceptable and what's unacceptable. And it's it's very sad, but in a lot of these newsrooms, what if you cover something in a way that is wrong, is incorrect, like so many did with Jesse Smollett, but it's acceptable, then you're, you're not going to be hit as hard as if you covered something in a correct way but about in a way that was unacceptable to the to the you know the Twitterati, the people that are that are the loudest voices on Twitter, and so that's completely messed up, and that's a new phenomenon. That's not something that existed when you when you didn't have social media and people yelling at you. You only had people maybe calling into the newsroom or sending a letter. It, it wasn't public. There wasn't there weren't able to be these pressure campaigns that came about it, and that's why I think we get we see so much get you know incorrectly covered, like the Justice Millette story, is because. Why, why cover it right? Why try to get it right? Because you're only going to get yelled at by people like AOC. Eh, we'll just get it wrong and we'll move on. <laughs> well, I mean, it's such a great point. And I think you talk about in the book uh, where you're interviewing Jimmy Fallon and his producers. And how I guess how much of this is like self-created by media executives. And I found this fascinating. I actually highlighted the quote um, where he said, we like to do things that certain people love as opposed to something else everybody likes so in other words and and this was sort of born out of the idea that media companies like like fox news for example or maybe even perhaps cnn are owned by bigger and bigger conglomerates so you end up now we're in an environment where you have media like media networks owned by massive massive companies and i think you refer to them in the book as blobs to where now you have also journalists with small media companies doing podcasts and sub stacks who have a really strong connection with their audience the smaller folks bigger media conglomerates perhaps don't have a stronger connection with their audience so in an attempt to actually get a base shows like the like jimmy fallon and the, and the tonight show are going all in with a certain demographic or a certain audience to make sure that they have a base do i have that right yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, it, the way that the the financial incentive structure has changed so dramatically, it, it, this relates to play, people like Jimmy Fallon and entertainment shows. I talk a lot about ESPN in the book and the way that that's shifted. The the, the big media outlets like CNN and New York Times. You know, there was once a time when that business was just going to be printing money. You could really go and build a giant audience and try to attract as many people as you could and you try to maybe water it down a little bit so that you can just get bring in any, everyone not offend anyone and, and that was the actual mentality but you know I, I when i interviewed jimmy fallon about this and his producers and this was like 2009 this was early on but they they saw that this was changing that you there was no longer going to be these you know, five or six million people watching at night no you could win that time slot with two million or, or one and a half million and and that, that so you need to appeal to smaller number of people but people that love you, that people that will have a much greater affinity to you. And so, yeah, I think we absolutely saw that with the ESPNs of the world, with the CNN and the New York Times is they they don't care about alienating people on the right in some capacity because the, 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 the pool that they need to pull from 
is is smaller and smaller. They're they're feeling the quicksand beneath their feet. They're just trying to grab onto the lowest hanging fruit and hold on for dear life and get and make the most out of their time before everyone just shifts to streaming or some other platform. So so yeah, I think that's a huge problem because in in some ways institutional media is needed. We need media that has large resources and legal departments to fight the good fight, even if they have their their hearts in the right place, which obviously they don't. But when you have this this current structure, you're going to make these they're going to make these bad business decisions because they no longer have to appeal to the masses. Well, right. And so like what I was thinking about is like how much of this is self-created? In other words, the media executives going all in with a certain audience, what they do is in effect create a self-licking ice cream cone where, yeah, they might have a really strong audience that they go all in on, but they all end up being like ideologically dogmatic and similar. And so what happens is when a situation like at the New York Times where they run a, a Tom Cotton op-ed at the height of the summer of love where Tom Cotton is advocating sending troops into cities to quell some of these violent riots, you have people in the New York Times like newsrooms who are crying and freaking out and organizing in a way to whereby they're firing editors and pulling the op-eds and apologizing to the public whereas if they just like did like maybe had a broader audience it was more intellectually diverse maybe they wouldn't have had a, a problem with maybe losing their audience that they went all in on in the first place does that make sense oh that's exactly right yeah intellectual diversity is is what's really missing in a lot of these newsrooms and i and i think that that's it, it pull, takes from pulling from different experiences people that that I don't even need to necessarily fill it with a bunch of MAGA people. You just have people right. that are open-minded and that right. would go a long way. So, so yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, I, I think that the, New York, the Tom Cotton op-ed story, which I write about in Uncovered in Chapter 10, is is another one that's really emblematic of, of the problems with the press. And I, I talked to uh, Sean McCreesh, who was in the newsroom at the time. This is now, he's now at New York Magazine. And he was laying out that people were so, you know, just... Uh, emotional about the publication of <laughs> he this. He said one dude like logged on to like one of the chats and was crying or something yes, about it. I'm like, come on, guy, get it crying. together, man. And why was he crying? Not because it was published, but because his friends wouldn't talk to him because he worked for the New York <laughs> Times and that, that dared to publish this horrible op-ed. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like absolutely ridiculous. It's yes. insane. It, 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 so so yes, it, it's insane that then what was what was done was publicly there was this pressure campaign being done by the staffers of the New York Times to say publishing this op-ed puts the lives of Black New York Times staffers in danger, as if they actually believe publishing an op-ed by a senator puts lives in danger. That's completely ridiculous. That's that shows how they don't even understand journalism. But you you were able to see that this worked. They got the people fired. They got less voices like Tom Cotton to be published in the New York Times or, you know, go even beyond that. Tom Cotton is a United States senator. How about just anyone else? So they were able to really make this pressure campaign work. And 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 that is that's a scary moment because the, the bosses were not able to stand firm in their principles. Well, yeah. And they end up getting rid of the New York Times opinion editorials page. And they just go with guest essays to give them a level of diffusion. Oh, hey, right. this is just a guess. Like, we don't actually believe even any of this stuff like what the hell is that about like what how that was one of the most cowardly things i've ever heard and i mean this is why this book is fascinating it's uncovered you you've, you've got to get it if you're interested in politics whether you're a democrat or republican it doesn't matter you're interested in why we are where we are right now as a country with regards to lack of trust in the media you got to read this book steve's been in the game for a really long time um okay we'll end the interview with like what do we do to get the hell out of here? And I'll tell you, like, I really like some of your recommendations. And one of the things that Rick Grinnell always used to talk about as part of the Trump administration is breaking up, you know, concentrated power in Washington. In other words, like, let's get rid of some, like, take some of these cabinet level departments, like the Department of Education and put it in Idaho. Let's yeah. take the IRS out of Washington, D.C. and put it in Dallas, Texas. Spread it out so that they're more emblematic of the actual country that they serve. You kind of recommend that with the, the Acela Media in New York City and in Washington, D.C., and not just like maybe hiring journalists that live in communities or if they're not already from there, sending people to actually embed with those communities. And one of the best things I loved about it was that finding journalists that might not have the right Hey, look, maybe they don't have the right educational pedigree. They don't they, maybe they didn't go to Harvard School of Journalism or in your case, Syracuse. Yeah. But they have an attitude where like, I don't give a fuck. Like right. I'm covering the truth and I don't care uh, what it costs me. I'm speaking truth to power 
And look, I don't care if that person doesn't like me, but the American people can come hell or high water can believe that this is the actual truth. And yeah, well, yeah. I think it's great. I love the idea. So, I mean, not giving a fuck is like really what should be at the top of, of every <laughs> journalism. This is what you need to do as a journalist. I, I, people ask me, well, what, what's the skill set? I, I, I say, you know, not just about being curious. You need to be nosy. You know, nosy is a negative term. Like but Nancy for, from Stranger Things. You ever see Stranger <laughs> Things? She's like the the young report. She's like you. You're like <laughs> the male version of Nancy. Like Nancy's like in a newsroom with a bunch of men. They were like laughing her off. And she's like, I'm not going to let those men tell me what to do. And she's a hard nosed journalist. Like she's out there getting the stories. Just yes, sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean yeah. to just co-op what you were saying, but it's uh, it's. I, I gotta check out I Stranger Things. I I I don't know. Wait, you've never right. seen Stranger Things? I, I have it. No, it's sad. I, I've been spending too much time by, on Twitter. I need to go. There's a out. journalism sub story there. Like you I'm would love it. it. See, that's why I, lo I love Secession is because it's about the media too. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. I, I love. Uh, I was just watching that last night. Uh, yeah, no, no. It, you need people that it's a mentality. It, it's not about credentials. It's not even about experience. It's a mentality, and you need to find people. And that's going to take people that don't care about how many Twitter followers they have or who they're offending, and also moving them to places like New York and D.C. where they can just be sanitized from the background that they come from. Put people in places. Put newsrooms in places. I completely agree with that from, from what Rick Grinnell said. I think that that goes a long way. Um, and, and also is about admitting when you get get things wrong. And I, I think that that's a huge one. But also, you know, I, I describe um, public editors or ombudsmen could go a long way. People that, that their job is to work in these newsrooms, but to be the voice of the public, to be a check on these organizations. This is something that existed at places like the New York Times and Washington Post and NPR. And they've mostly gone away because, you know, this idea of, oh, we can't hold ourselves accountable. That's that might you know turn off the audience. No, the audience wants that. It wants someone who you can go to and trust, even if you don't trust the whole organization. That's a step in the right direction to start to win back some of the trust that they've completely, you know, just completely lost. I totally agree. And so and here you are, right? You're the executive producer of the Megyn Kelly show, right? And yeah. you still doing that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a day job for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like it's like sometimes people find themselves in, in the exact right place. Like Megan seems like exactly that kind of a person, right? Where yeah. she doesn't really care what corporate media says, doesn't care what liberals or conservatives say. She's like out there saying like, well, DeSantis is afraid to actually come and do an interview with me. Like, by the way, like that is awesome. I love yeah. that. I love that. she. America needs more people like you in the media and like Megyn Kelly in the media. But this, but this book is a roadmap. If we want to make this system better or I'm an executive at any one of these news companies, like you're my first phone call, Steve. Well, because thank you. I appreciate that. And I will say, Megan, you know, she's someone who has been in the corporate media at NBC at Fox News. She knows what it's like much more than even I do. And so, so I mean, it's been it's been fantastic working with her. We definitely agree very much on, on a lot of the problems that exist in the corporate media structure right now. And I would also say, though, I I really wrote the book for the for the public in the sense of I, I want to lay out not just what happened over these last five to seven years, but why. And lay out some red flags, some some things for you to, to to look for, and say, okay, this is happening again because it's going to be continuing to happen. So here's what you should be armed with to know when it happens in the future and how to be skeptical, not totally distrust the media, but to be skeptical and what to look for so you know when it happens again. How to how that you might be getting spun or lied to in in this sort of propaganda push that's being out there. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening or you're watching, get uncovered. It's it's a great book, and and Steve, what's what's next for you, real quick? Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's, the Megyn Kelly show is, is it's that's that's where we're that's where we're putting all our energy. Uh, <laughs> I think that it's going to be it's an interesting time. I think we've got a lot to cover these uh, these next uh, weeks. She's and an ass kicker, man. Ahead. She's an ass yeah. kicker. She's good. it's a good place to be, you know. For sure. Definitely. And and so get the book uncovered, Steve. Thank you for joining us for like almost an hour. Um, I appreciate your time, man, and good luck with everything. Thanks, Sean. Always good talking to right. you. All right. Take care, Steve. All right, everybody. That's a wrap. Uh, Steve is a pretty amazing guy. He's super smart. His book is great. You got to run out and get it. If you want to understand how we got to where we are in this country today with regards to the media, read the book. It's it's just a behind-the-scenes look of, of everything. Um, 
And if you like what you heard, subscribe to Battleground Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It's everywhere. Uh, Leave reviews if you feel so inclined. We need them. Uh, You can also subscribe to my brand new Rumble channel for exclusive content. I'm also on YouTube as well, at least for the time being until I get censored or canceled from there. Uh, We'll see. Um, Anyways, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening or watching this. None of this is possible without you. Uh, God bless you all, and God bless this amazing country that we live in. Take care. Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.